Toffer Ta, Women's Success China is powered by the Seneca Network. We are biweekly podcasts focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SUP China, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McRonald for editing. This week, we are joined by Amy Wu, currently an investment partner on Lightspeed's growth team and previously group CFO and SVP of Discovery Inc.'s global digital and sports businesses. Outside of work, Amy advises and angel invests in startups in the New York tech community and is an avid mountaineer. I'd listen to this episode if you want to understand what's hot in gaming, D2C, and infrastructure in APAC, why she's still bullish on Chinese investments, and some key tactical advice on how she navigates male-dominated spaces. It's fast-paced, and we cover a lot in less than an hour. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Ta for Ta, Women Success China. I am stoked to have Amy Wu on the podcast today. She is a partner at Lightspeed, and she's on the growth team leading investments in categories of enterprise AI, security and infrastructure, marketplace, gaming, and D2C. It's a pretty hefty portfolio, if I do say so myself. So we're very excited to have you on the show today, Amy. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. And if anybody's listened to the podcast before, you know, I, I love to tee things off just kind of with this high level view of almost a highlights reel of your career. You know, what were some of those touch points along the way that led you to the role that we, we give you when we introduce you? Sounds good. I will kick it off with maybe undergrad where um, I was at Harvard and, and studied biochem was pre-med, um, but, you know, decided not to go to medical school and instead uh, started my career in consulting and then spent my early career at Insight Venture Partners, which was, um, you know, one of the largest and most successful growth stage funds, VC funds based in New York City. Um, And when I was there, I covered sort of categories of software, SaaS and marketplace and e-commerce in the U.S. and Asia Pacific, which is actually pretty similar to what I'm doing you know, now as a partner at Lightspeed, just in a more senior role. Um, and in between that, I spent you know, about seven years as a CFO, where um, you know, first I was at a company called NewsCred um, in marketing SaaS uh, software in New York City. And then I was at Discovery, which is a uh, large you know, global corporate media company where um, I was the CFO of the Air, our Asia Pacific business. And then moved back to New York City and did the same um, over the direct-to-consumer and sports portfolio. Um, And I was in Singapore when I was um, with the APEC business. And, you know, today at Lightspeed, um, as you mentioned, I I lead growth investments, which, you know, we define as sort of Series B through pre-IPO in the U.S. and in Asia, uh, and in both new and companies in our portfolio. Uh, And some of the categories that I spent a lot of time with and very excited about our, you know, AI infrastructure, security, enterprise, and then the consumer side and gaming and direct to consumer. And so I do want to take it back all the way to the beginning just for a bit. Um, I think in some of our pre-conversations, you actually talked about how you're kind of trying to help out with a bunch of different startups. You're at a WeWork. Um, I'd love if you could just talk about that time. And I think a lot of people feel like they need to be set on this path, especially if they want to do something in a venture space, that they they need to know that they want to do that right from the time they they step foot out of the door during undergrad. And it it seems like there was a lot of value for you in those kind of early career, you know, meeting people, kind of offering help where you could. Um I just I would love if you could talk about that time and if you are agreeing with that sentiment of that value of kind of speaking to different people, trying a few different things and, and seeing where you land. Yeah, definitely. I, I mentor a lot of, you know, college grads and, um, and then also college students and, and definitely for the ones that are interested in VC, um, you know, they think they, they need to get into the career right after, right after school, which, you know, is a fine time to go into it. But, you know, venture is like one of those industries that, kind of attract people from all walks of life and all stages of career. And there really isn't like a best time to get into it, particularly if you're an early stage investor. I would say most growth investors are 
um, you know, lifelong um, investors, uh, you know, they a lot of time they start out in banking before they go over to the buy side and and find their way to to growth growth capital or growth equity um, investing. And um, but you know, for me, um, it wasn't necessarily planned. You know, like you mentioned, so I was working in New York City. I was at a consulting firm. I wanted to get into tech, and so I um, was just hanging out and we work. Um, you know, did some financial modeling from some friends at startups. That are that were there and interviewed for a lot of roles and at in both funds and also in in companies at the time and it was a friend of mine who was um, working at at Insight that um, that helped me get an interview there and I ended up getting um, full time job but you know I could have I could have at that point you know like ended up at a tech company startup or or large or at a fund and and I think there's really like you know it could have been I think it would have been fine like and I in any case but um was lucky to to start at Insight when the fund was actually a lot smaller than it was today and um and really saw the rise of the tech industry in the New York City but then also just globally as well. Mm. And then what prompted you to uh you know leave the it seemed like you had a lot of momentum tech was growing sector space was becoming more developed, more um, sophisticated. The way that people were investing seems like things were going well at Insight Partners. Were there any steps along the way between what you were doing there and then landing the role at CFO at um, Discovery's Asia Pacific business? I'm assuming there's steps along the way. So I'm, I'm leading you a bit into that, but I want to <laughs> understand how you got from insight to discovery. Yeah, definitely. So um, there were three steps actually before discovery. The first was business that makes school. Sense. I, I actually um, was supposed to go to Harvard Business School. Um, and, you know, the summer before I joined, um, somebody who was at Insight, um, who had actually, you know, became an investor at iVentures. And, and early stage investing was something I really want to try post business school. Anyway, um, I he, he encouraged me to apply for the firm. And, and so I interviewed and got the job and decided to actually not go to business school and join IA Ventures. Um, and, mm. you know, I think I, um, I definitely uh, regret the many hours of maybe partying, partying, traveling. I could have done if I had done that. But, you know, it, <laughs> it, it turned out all right after all. But, um but so I was at um, I was at IA and kind of discovered that I I do prefer you know personally I'm drawn towards growth stage businesses um, a bit more and so at that time you know I was there for about a year and had an offer to go back to Insight but also just had this desire to see what it was like to work for a company and um, and so um, I. I spent, I ended up spending almost four years at NewsCred. You know, NewsCred was a company I worked with when I was at IA. Um, you know, I had invested early in the company. And um, and so I, you know, helped them raise a, a round of financing um, and knew the, the CEO, Shafkat Islam. And he basically said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to basically not be able to pay you a fraction of what Insight could, but, you know, I'm going to be your biggest advocate and you're going to learn so much at this company. And then you can go and, and, you know, be a partner at some funds, <laughs> like down the road. Um, mm. but, you know, this is just like an awesome opportunity. And, you know, I just wanted to work for somebody who, you know, was such an advocate for me, um, even though at that time, we, we didn't really know each other that well. And, um, and so took the job, it was like an individual contributor job, like kind of jack of all trades operations. And it wasn't really six months later that I took over kind of the finance function at the company. And, um, and it was just, um, it was such a ride and, and I learned so much. You know, what do you think makes someone a fast advocate? Is it that first impression that you think you left on this individual? Cause I think it's so, I think a lot of times mm. people are searching for the advocate, yeah. the mentor, and, and sometimes people just draw, draw a distinction without a difference between those two titles. But, um, yeah, what do you think makes someone a fast advocate? I'm actually going to put the um, kind of like the advocacy more on the advocator side, as in I think there are some people that are just phenomenal mentors and they're they were phenomenal mentors, not just me, but like many other people. There are these hubs of like mentorship and connection. Um, and I was just I've just been like lucky to have encountered them like in my career and also realize them for what they were, which is just like amazing advocates and for me, just both personally and, and professionally, um, you know, actually some of my best friends were from NewsCred. I mean, Shafkat has, has 
I mean, great talent, not just running a business, but also bringing amazing people together um, and really building what felt like a family. But that was really him rather than, you know, I think what I inspired. And, and for, for people who are, um, are these kind of great mentors in life, I think what they're looking for is people who are super passionate about um, what they are passionate about. And, and then when they see that fit and they see that kind of like, you know, fire in, in a person, then they're really compelled to pay forward and, and help somebody. And, you know, I, I, I look for that, you know, in my own mentorship of people today, too. Yeah, I can imagine. And and going both up and down because uh, they're probably in a unique place where you can find both both of those types of mentorship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you were you were continuing on with the the steps <laughs> along the way. Uh I I'd love to continue on with that story. At Newscred for um for over 3 years and decided, you know, the what I really, you know, I'm like a lifelong learner. I I really am looking for learning and in, in my roles and I felt like it was time to like learn something else and at the time the company was sort of near profitable on a really good path and so you know, I I I gave shop I think something like 6 months notice or maybe more than that and started looking for additional roles and and another friend of mine connected me at some point to the CFO of Discovery, Gunnar Wiedenfell and and here, you know, and he was just like this 39-year-old, you know, global CFO of a publicly traded sort of Fortune 500 company. And I saw in him this person that I was really inspired by and wanted to emulate. You know, he was progressive and very, you know, business-minded um, and a CFO and finally gave me the offer for um, CFO of the Asia-Pacific business. And um, it was just, it felt like such a great fit, somebody I really want to learn from. Yeah, if you were to give someone like, top three takeaways of your time there like what were those like big learning moments for you when you were at discovery i mean you have some really big highlights in terms of what you oversaw leading acquisitions some really like big pivotal moments which anybody can read on paper i i really want to know like what were those takeaways those comeback moments like a really important learning and nugget of knowledge during that time I think one of them was definitely, you know, because I spent most of my career in tech and earlier stage. And I, I think sometimes um, in the earlier stage, we don't people don't appreciate enough just the scale and complexity of a much larger business. I mean, um, I think when I left, you know, Discovery was over um, a billion, 11 billion top, top line revenue. And um, and, you know, in Asia, in Asia, we were active in over 15 countries um, in where, you know, in countries where media is really heavily regulated, you know, countries like China and India, Japan, Korea, uh, and countries in Southeast Asia. And so I really had to learn and be, like, you know, the responsibility for making sure we were compliant across what were, you know, a lot more complex sort of regulatory environment and, and financial environments. And, and also, um, and that was just something I hadn't done before, but you know, my, my manager kind of, um, took the leap of faith that I was ready to do that. Um, and so, but I did a lot of learning on the job and I couldn't have done it without just amazing support along the way. Um, and, and also, I mean, the second thing, I mean, I think probably the biggest learning there was during my tenure in APAC, um, uh, we had acquired scripts, you know, one of our competitors for about $15 billion and, I was able to um, got the opportunity to lead our um, Asia integrations for the business. And, um, and that included personnel integrations. And I would say that was probably one of the biggest learnings in my entire career because, you know, I had certain targets I needed to hit um, and, um, and we had a joint plan and in the path to hitting some of those targets, which included, you know, actually like revenue growth on the business side, but then also cost reduction. There was just so much, so much of it, 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 there's so much more to it than what was on paper. Like one plus one equals three. There was like the human element of it. I mean, people morale was challenged because there was so much change at once and, you know, people were shifting roles and people were being let go and people being promoted and just, just being like learning the empathy that deals that comes with just working through that and it's people's lives. And that was, and I think having the finesse to manage through that, which you know, definitely was, you know, I had to like get up to speed with and I didn't handle all the situations the best that I could have. That that was absolutely, I think, the biggest learning opportunity for me there. Um, and I think the last one, the th- if I were to say a third one, it's just seeing from like on the ground what it felt like for 
a traditional media company that was incredibly profitable um, for a long time um, in transforming itself into this, you know, sort of next gen like digital business that was being disrupted by companies like a Hulu or a Netflix and seeing like the friction of that um, on like sort of day to day, um, you know, because you have business units with different incentives and objectives and, and just kind of financial targets. That, that was really, really difficult. Um, and I think it really brought to life just how incredible it is that, for example, for a company like Microsoft to transform itself from, I mean, kind of, you know, like Word um, or Microsoft Windows, really, to this multifaceted platform, like, you know, cl cloud player to productivity suite, like that transformation is so difficult. And um, I have so much appreciation for companies that, that successfully do that. Yeah. And I mean, have you been following Discovery's trajectory since leaving the company? Because it's an interesting space, right? About uh, video streaming. How do you mm -hmm. continue to evolve? How do you structure products that consumers are going to be interested in and still interested in and find value in? It seems that you were focus more on uh, on operational and financial perspective, but um, have you been following at all how the APAC business has been doing since leaving? Do you think you set set it up for uh, a good trajectory? <laughs> Time will tell. I mean, I, I, yeah. I definitely follow you know, my friends there in the Asia business and direct-to-consumer and sports. And I will say that, I mean, if anything, you know, there's one thing you can say, and that's David Zasloff and that team is, is aggressive. You know, they're, they're, they're not afraid to do big deals and, and risk a lot of the, of the, you know, kind of like shorter term gains for like long term, so long term viability of the business and growth of the business. And, and I think ultimately that company has such great, just IP, you know, it's, and it's a, and it's a company that's in the business of creating great content. Um, and particularly lifestyle content is an area that they're just really great at. Um, and also sports. And, you know, with that, then it's around being able to find the right go to market and these new digital channels that people are, are viewing the content around um, while balancing sort of, you know, what is still a very large percentage of the population that still really like to watch TV. Yeah. And, you know, I think on that operational side of things, when I was doing some of my research on you, one of the things I love that it says is that you love getting in the trenches with CEOs and their teams. And I'm assuming that's primarily based on the fact that you had to get in the trenches and worked on the company side or yeah, basically the company client side of things. And, you know, I'd love if you could talk a bit about what you do now at Lightspeed Ventures, but also really talk about some of those, that day to day of getting the opportunity to to work with the CEOs, their teams, and and helping them grow and develop their businesses. Yeah, sounds good. So I mean, at, at Lightspeed, you know, I'm, I'm sort of in the business of, of, um, you know, we were kind of given funds from our limited partners to invest in great, you know, sort of high growth tech companies, generational tech companies. And so we go out and try to find those at all stages, whether it's early stage seed all the way through even pre IPO, since I mean, so much of the growth these days happens once the company has gone public even. And so on a day to day basis, you know, I kind of structure my, um, kind of like three work streams that I really focus on. I mean, one is first, like, you know, I have portfolio companies I work with and it's companies like ThoughtSpot, you know, on the data side and, um, you know, on the AI side, Yellow Messenger and, and Laia in, in China. And then, um, you know, there's, there's we in the US, like in the consumer side, Epic Games, et cetera. I wake up in the morning, I'm like, what kind of value am I bringing to these companies on a weekly basis? And because, you know, we, um, the company decides to take our money because they think that we're going to help them along their path to exit um, and, and growth and beyond. Um, and so that's, that's the first thing. But then also, you know, spend a lot of time looking at opportunities to invest both within our own portfolio and also in new companies. Um, and then lastly, you know, spend the time like building relationships with those founders and CEOs and also, you know, doing diligence when they are raising a round of financing to see whether it makes sense and it's a fit for us to invest. You know, you mentioned some of these these companies, Yellow Messenger, okay, Credit, We, you know, what sort of categories do you have your eye on right now? I mean, specifically within gaming, D2C, infrastructure, where you obviously have an expertise. What's kind of piquing your interest? There's a lot of moving parts. I feel like 
a lot of these industries are very dynamic right now, especially given a lot of these external factors that are are impacting markets everywhere. But what's piquing your interest? Yeah. So, you know, Lightspeed is um, prob- probably about two thirds of our investments in enterprise and one third in, in consumer. And um, I, I look at both categories. So, you know, in, in enterprise, you know, we've been investors, I think, as a fund in data AI infrastructure and security and software for a long time. Um, and, you know, I spend a lot of time in those categories as well, just kind of primarily focused on growth and again, U.S. and India and China. And, um, and you know, particularly AI infra and security, these, this is a category that, that, you know, and we've, you know, other successes in our portfolio includes, you know, companies like MuleSoft, AppDynamics, Rubric. Um, and these, this, What's happening is an, like a transformation in Fortune 500 companies and enterprise where CIOs have been moving essentially data centers and their infrastructure from, you know, on-premise to um, the cloud and and the many steps in, in between. And that's sort of resulted in um, in investments in, I think, new new platforms and technologies just across the board and ways new ways that they need to secure their data um, and ways to visualize logs and um, and other parts of the business. And so that's just, you know, resulted in very fast innovation cycles, um, both for um, CIOs, but then also day to day for, you know, data scientists and engineers that um, and the new tools and languages and models that they get to work with. And so, like, that's what makes this category so exciting for for myself and then for many other investors. Um and then, and, and, you know, that really has not slowed down at all during um, this year in COVID. And, and really, there's a much longer term bet on this space. Uh, and then on the consumer side, you know, consumer behavior, I would say COVID is really like an accelerant to um, the move towards like digital, whether it's like e-commerce or like telehealth and, um, you know, digital education. And um, it's been really fascinating to see that happen. And, you know, and you mentioned gaming. I mean, I, I love gaming. I played a lot of hours of PC and PlayStation games growing up with my brother. And, um, you know, this was a segment gaming was growing as a share of just like entertainment hours and dollars pre-COVID. And that's both on the console side and mobile. And, you know, and that's only accelerated during. And, you know, we're investors in Epic Games and seeing how they're able to now mix formats and bring in like live concerts into Fortnite. Um, it really brings and democratizes, I think, like different segments of people that previously would never have thought themselves as a gamer, like playing games now. And, you know, mobile obviously being a huge accelerant to that trend as well. And so, you know, yeah, I'm actively looking for more investments in, in the category and, and excited to talk to founders in the space. Anything specifically in D2C? Uh, I'm, do you focus more on the enterprise or consumer side for that? Well, consumer, so D2C is pretty broad and um, there's there's both like, you know, what's happening and, and there's this juggernaut of, of uh, you know, retail just coming online just fast. You know, I think it was... In the last um, few months, has kind of stripped outstripped the last maybe like seven or eight years of of movement towards like online commerce, um, and certainly you know Amazon was a huge beneficiary of that, but also just a lot of companies that are more in vertical or even horizontal. You have Shopify, etc., benefiting, and so that um, that has been. Yeah, Lightspeed, we're, we're kind of invested in a lot of different categories of D2C. Um, and that also includes, you know, companies like Calm, I would say, that's actually, you know, not offering a physical product, but actually like, you know, a um, digital content. Um, and that's particularly mine, you know, sort of wellness and health. But then also, you know, physical goods, you know, I'm an investor in We, and for example, they're Asian, uh, focused on the Asian demographics and online food. And online food has absolutely been transformed during COVID because, you know, people used to go to the grocery stores and then everyone started going to to buy groceries on, on Instacart and and, uh, and We and all these other platforms. And there was a huge shift in like online grocery that happened globally. And so, that um, has been just amazing to see, kind of get a front seat for. And so these are some of the you know categories that I spent a lot of time in. Yeah. What I think is interesting, and I wonder if you strategically positioned yourself in this way, when I think of gaming, when I think of D2C e-commerce, when I think of some things around even enterprise AI and cloud, 
these are actually some industry verticals where, you know, North America, the U.S., looks for cues or looks for inspiration from um, Asia or even Chinese companies or mm-hmm. are sometimes even in direct rivalry um, and really close competitors. Um, or even you think about there was this crazy statistic that I think Shopify just surpassed eBay um, in terms of its uh, valuation. And, you know, that was still so much less than Alibaba and JD.com. Um, yeah. So you know, have you strategically positioned yourself that if you're going to focus on Asia, you're going to focus on these leading spaces? Or is that just been a great correlation with the fact that you're in growth? growth um, venture? I mean, I think, you know, we spent a lot of time in um, in categories where there's a lot of growth. And I, I think, you know, um, it's a very competitive space. Like, these are all very competitive categories. I think Dr. Yeah. and the other investors are all uh, excited about it because these are just long trends, you know, like um, that are happening. Perhaps like online food is a category that became more recently um, accelerated from from COVID. Um, and uh, but some of the other categories have been um, you've been, we've been seeing that for a long time. And and, you know, you, you mentioned um, yeah, I mean, like, so I've been in terms of APAC, this is the third time, you know, I've been working um, in some of the Asian markets, you know, first at Insight, where, uh, you know, we had spent some time in India and China looking at companies there and had invested in JD.com, um, which is a really successful uh, investment for the for the fund. And then, you know, it's based in Singapore for discovery. And then um, and now, you know, um, looking at growth investments in the market. And I would just say, you know, the demographics are just there. And um, and I think in 10 years, there's just so much, so many opportunities. Um, and then you have the rise of Southeast Asia as well now. Um, and so, you know, it's just exciting markets that, you know, I've covered for a long time. Um, you know, I'm Chinese myself, so there's obviously like a personal interest there, um, but then also just a professional one. I just think, I just see the demographics um, being there in the next like decades to come. And also it's interesting because quite frankly, these markets look so different than the U.S., um, similar in some ways, but very different in other ways, particularly China. And so it's been like such a learning, um, like a journey and working with our Lightspeed China team um, around understanding what's going on there. And, you know, I can um, I can speak a lot to like why like China is just such a huge opportunity scale, um, a lot of opportunities for venture. But, you know, I think you're seeing increasingly more bifurcated markets for companies to sell into, whereas like, you know, China companies are selling to Chinese enterprise and consumers and, you know, kind of um, maybe there's less opportunities, fewer opportunities for them in the at least the short, medium term. But there's plenty of opportunities for them to sell into Southeast Asia and India and other markets in, in, in Asia, for example, or even Europe. Um, in the short and media term. So, um, you know, we, we're pretty bullish on, on the market and have co-invested many times. Yeah, let's actually dig a bit more into that that China um, aspect of what you're talking about. Um, just to give some more color context to your, your quoted in a TechCrunch article about Lightspeed leading Leia. That's how Laie, I say it, right? yeah. <laughs> okay. Leading Laie's funding round, a Chinese startup that offers robotic process automation services to several major tech firms and the nation and government agencies. Also curious more about what uh, robotic process automation services they exactly do. But, you know, you say in that article, you're on the record saying we're very bullish on China. The opportunities there are massive. Um, I would just love if you could kind of dig into a bit more about that specific um, funding round, you know, mm-hmm. why, why this company, why are you bullish on China? Has that changed since the TechCrunch article? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, there's a data point that I really love to, um, to think about. And, and that is like, if you think about last year, um, 2019, um, just looking at just the size of the market, right? So if you look at between like Black Friday and Cyber Monday in the U S which are sort of the biggest retail, days for us. Um, and during that period, there was about like $28 billion in, in retail sales across all online offline re- retailers last year. So um, in comparison, like if you look at Singles Day in China, which is November 11th, one day, um, Alibaba actually did $38 billion in sales 
And one day where, you know, kind of like during the five day period in the US was like 28 billion, including Amazon. And in China, in that one day, there was about 60 billion of retail sales across all platforms. So about 2x the same, um, you kind of like the peak period in the US. And there are far more than 2x the number of people in China. And so it just speaks to kind of just not just how large the opportunity is, how much larger, but also just how much more room there is still to grow. And it's, it's one of the reasons why you just seen like enterprise value, I think at some of the largest Chinese companies just skyrocket in the last several years. I mean, you've got Tencent now at 620 billion in, you know, enterprise value, Alibaba is at 700 billion. Um, and this is versus like Facebook today, I think it's around 750. And um, so there's just still, still so much upside. Um, you know, we're our China, um, our Lightspeed China teams and um, Series A investors in Pinduoduo, which is a social commerce company that's currently, you know, has an enterprise value of $105 billion. And, um, and so we're, we're just really bullish on, on opportunities in China, certainly on the consumer side, but also in the emerging enterprise segment, which interestingly just looks different than in the US. And I think that that is a bit underappreciated. So, I mean, in China, you've got like sectors like semiconductor and um, IoT, and some of these are the hottest categories actually in, in the market um, compared to, I think, the US and enterprise, we just think a lot about cloud um, and software. And that's some of where the highest multiples are. Um, software and cloud in China, I would say, are still early. But because of that, there's a lot of upside there for venture investors. And that is um, one of the thesis that's underpinning our investment in, in, in Laia, who's the number one um, Chinese player in robotic um, process automation, um, RPA. And they um, and what that does is, you know, in, in an enterprise, you know, there's a lot of, I think, day to day tasks that is um, repeated by people kind of like thousands and thousands of times, whether it's sort of like document scanning or, you know, and like data entry. And um, and so like now, like, you know, companies in the RPA space essentially are able to automate these processes. It, it actually unlocks a lot of time from people um, from sort of like, you know, employees that are then able to spend their time on more sort of like strategic parts of the business, more analytics rather than just data entry, um, up-leveling what they're doing, makes their job more interesting. Um, and it also is like just cost efficient for the for the company as well. Um, and the thing is, is that a company like Laia, they're able to compete in certain sectors like Chinese state-owned enterprises and enterprise sectors in a way that, you know, Western companies just are going to have a much harder time doing um, going forward. And that is an opportunity that's worth hundreds of billions of dollars um and sort of you know going forward and so that's it's a really um you know exciting opportunity for us very interesting and then when you say is this primarily serving nation and government agencies is it, e is it even serving other privately owned businesses within china or is this it's primarily privately owned businesses actually okay. yeah like this the it's if we call it like state it's called i think state-owned enterprises they're you know um, SOEs. They're yeah, exactly. SOEs. Um, you, you know, you know, you know that well, and it's like covering categories like mining and, um, uh, but then also like telecom and, um, and banking, financial services. So it's kind of across the spectrum. Got it. And they they partner with um, you know, obviously kind of like you know multinationals and on in the West as well. And so um, there's just I just think like there's like a unique opportunity for Chinese vendors to actually take on Chinese specific SOEs. Very interesting, and you know. I didn't ask this outright, but I, I know you like to help your investment companies expand globally, but it also seems like you're saying that, you know, in that short to medium term, given some of these external shocks, given the way things are, do you see that the investments that you're making, that the pressure to expand outside of the China market or even the Asian market feels less so there when you're thinking about your strategic priorities with the companies that you're you're working with yeah that's a good question i think for our chinese companies um that you know probably expanding the u.s might be deprioritized for a while but the thing is is that it wasn't a huge focus for them even you know kind of before recent news um like you know they were focused on expanding southeast asia and india and mm -hmm. had been for some time and i think um you know obviously some some challenges in India as well, but certainly for South, Southeast Asia, there's a ton of opportunities there. And you actually see a lot of great sort of like second time Chinese entrepreneurs that have started some, um, you know, 
business models in Southeast Asia, particularly in Indonesia, that um, that they're scaling. And so you have this kind of wave of of um, of strong founders that are starting earlier stage companies um, where, you know, the, these markets are, are just, you know, still earlier stage and maturity than than similar markets in, in China or India. So it creates a lot of opportunities. Really interesting. You know, I would be remiss not to ask it, ask this because I, I really, in some of our earlier conversations, was um, intrigued by what you were talking about. And, you know, we talked about some of these verticals and industries that you're in being hyper-competitive, which oftentimes is associated with being um, hyper-male-dominated. And, you know, do you have any stories from either investor meetings or pitches? We've talked a little bit of the content and your POV and things, but just want to know, you know, how do you navigate these spaces? You've obviously done it successfully. And kind of the second question spinning off of that is, like, how do you give advice to women in terms of increasing their chances of success if they want to be in growth or some of these industries that you focus on? Yeah, it's, you know, obviously a lot has been written about that topic and spoken about it, but oh, I, um, know. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, we've come so long, um, such a long way in, in, in gender equality. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, the, you know, tech and finance and sports are, you know, these are industries that I've been in that are still pretty male dominated and particularly at the top. And so, um, you know, I definitely see a responsibility in helping change that. And um, and in in my career, sort of, you know, I've really been fortunate to be. I feel like I've I've been treated with respect, like most of the time. And um, but you know, I but I'm still almost always the only female, you know, on a call or or meeting or especially in a board meeting. Um, and the reality is, is that there's, you know, there's few female, I think, growth investment partners, and there's even fewer CEOs and execs who are female at the growth stage, um, public, certainly. And, um, and then especially in the categories like infra and AI and security and gaming, you know, some of these categories that I spent a lot of time in. And, um, and, you know, like, I, the fact is, is that I still get imposter syndrome, like, every day. And I actually think I, like, told the CEO this once, and I was interviewing for a CFO job, and I didn't get the job because of it, or one of the reasons. But I would be remiss to just not say that. Um, you know, I, I still walk into a meeting, or, you know, now kind of, like, enter in a Zoom meeting. And, you know, it's just, it's just um, all men, and I still have this instinct that, I need to prove that I deserve to have a seat at the table there. And I'm not sure that that's ever going to change. Um, and, you know, a lot of times this is in my head and, and other times, you know, I've been asked by, you know, like CEOs of security companies that, you know, if I, if I know anything about their product, you know, maybe, maybe I don't, they just, you know, start, you know, kind of just gave me a one one one. It's like, you know, I've actually met with dozens of companies in, in your space um, and they just assume that's not the case. Um, so I think a couple of things in terms of what has worked for me in navigating, um, you know, male dominated, uh, categories, and, uh, some is on me and some is on kind of like, um, them. And I think on mm -hmm. me is I kind of believe in putting people at ease, you know, like, um, if I'm going to talk to, let's say like the CEO of a security company, then, then you bet I will have diligence their product and him and and be able to speak really intelligently about it mm. like from the beginning of the meeting because i know i have this short window of period to sort of like prove at least i mean maybe this is my head like prove that i know i'm talking about so that he's gonna see me as like an equal on the call and um and so i take that pretty seriously i'm also pretty aggressively vocal <laughs> i've definitely been told many more times that maybe i should speak less in meetings than to speak up more <laughs> although um although on a separate point like i'm not sure that you know guys get told that so mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. some gender bias there anyway and then and, and then the, the other thing i would say is that i think women really increase their chances of success by by just you know surrounding themselves with great advocates men and women um that's something i've i've really felt like i've been so lucky with uh, my entire career and these are the people that you call when you know you get harassed or you get fired and these are the people that are going to call you when there's like an awesome opportunity that they come across and you know whether it's job or or deal or whatever related and 
And, you know, I, um, I owe like, you know, my advocates, I feel like all of my success. Um, and, you know, there are people like, I'll call out, you know, sort of like Hillary Gosher at, at Insight, there's Brad Tuig at, at Insight, who then brought me over to Lightspeed, and he's at Lightspeed now, and Shafkot at News, um, News and, and just so many, so many other places and people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I do think that you bring up a really good point that I think we actually haven't talked enough about on the podcast is you said, you know, some of it's on me and some of it's on them. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of times on on top for tub we'll talk about you know what can what what have you done or what what have you done in these spaces how have you navigated it yourself but i think you're just bringing up this also very helpful reminder that you know there's a lot that you individual can do but it's also a lot about the the structures around you and and you know just the trends of that changing and the people around you um mm-hmm. also changing so i i actually really appreciate you bringing that up because i don't think we've mentioned that enough um in in some of the interviews that i've done over time so thanks for that um i guess kind of building off that as well you know because venture can be sometimes this like black amorphous box of you know money is invested and mm-hmm. and <laughs> things happen to startups in, in very, very lay people's terms. You know, how do you demystify some of what you do? Um, and also kind of weaving into that, you know, you've said you've had a lot of great advocates. Are you kind of at a point in your career where you're also mentoring other people? And, you know, in those conversations, how do you demystify some of what you do? Yeah, there's the kind of, you know, what we were chartered to do by our limited partners, which is, you know, they give us a dollar <laughs> to invest in great tech companies. And yep. we kind of turn that into three to $5. And in the process of that, you know, um, those founders take our $1 by, um, because, you know, off, off the back of a promise that we're going to help them get to, you know, their vision and dreams. Um, and so that's sort of like very basic, like terms of like what I do. And, um, but I think, you know, when I mentor, um, when I, and, and really that's just like any kind of any investors charter to do that, um, make a return on their assets and they, and in terms of how demystifying them for people that I talk to and mentor for who are interested in, in venture, I would say, um, it, the paths are quite different if you want to do early stage versus growth stage. So for early stage investing, which is, you know, C series A, where you're really trying to find a lot of times like first time founders and you're looking for diamonds in the rough and you're looking for passion and, um, and vision. Um, well, you're looking for vision at every stage, but, but certainly it's less obvious, I think at the, at the earliest stages and, um, and where there's a lot more kind of like iterative product market fit discovery. Um, and there's people from a lot more walks of life that end up as an investor in this category, um, in that segment. So definitely people who grew up as an investor um, professionally, but then a lot of other people who, you know, founded companies, like sold them or had been successful operators for a long time. Um, and, uh, and so there's a lot of different ways and points in one's career to go into early stage investing um, versus in the growth and later stage investing, it becomes a lot closer to either public equity or private equity um, type of investments. There's a lot more numbers, you know, there's a lot more financial modeling. And so most people are lifelong investors. Um, mm. and, uh, and so they grew up kind of like started maybe investment banking and then they went to go then they you say uh, they crossed over to a fund from there and then spent a and then you know like in venture I think what you discover is that it's like a lifetime of learnings because our cycles are long you know from mm. the point of investment at every stage it might be a ten year journey where you're kind of discovering along with the founders like what happens and what worked what didn't work and and exiting the business um, and and then the journey continues after that um, and so. Um, you know, it's a, it's an industry where you're gonna, you, you're, if you're, if you're thinking about getting into it, it's at least a five, 10 year um, investment of time. You know, some people have also asked like, oh, can I just dabble in it? Can I try it for a year? And it's like, you won't know what it feels like in a year. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm just at the beginning of my journey this time around. So, um, and, uh, and, and, and VC is incredibly relationship 
service-based business. And so um, that's why in order to even get into the industry, it's almost like one filter is like how how well were you able to build relationships with funds? And then they use that as sort of like a indicator for then how well could you potentially build these relationships with companies? Um, and so mm. that's why they don't, you know, have these jobs like posted investment jobs, like posted on a lot of portals because they're looking for people that went out of their way to build that relationship with investment partners. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, they're looking for the right fit for the DNA of that fund and are kind of, um, and that's typically how they're going to find people to hire into these funds. That's a really great piece of advice. And I think you also answered one of the questions I was going to ask you about what makes growth investing uh, different or difficult than other types of investing. So, um, you know, getting ahead of things. Mm -hmm. So I'd actually love to also just talk about some more of your your personal passions and um, identities, because I think that's something that, you know, a lot of times when we uh, talk about our expertise, we don't get the opportunity to really bring our whole selves to our career, or bring our whole selves to work. Um, and I love the fact that you're an avid mountain climber. I think it says that you summited over 12 alpine peaks over 10,000 feet high. And I'm assuming that number's probably even gone up since that was <laughs> published. Uh, how'd you get into it? And do you think that there's things that you learn from this passion that you actually bring to your work? Oh man, I could talk about this for hours. Um, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're lucky we can cut things down. <laughs> um, so it really, yeah, I love mountain climbing. It really started with, I mean, I grew up in Oregon. So really the outdoors is like part of my upbringing. Um, I grew up camping in my backyard with my brother. And and then, mm. but I actually, and you know, my parents brought me and we spent all our summers sort of um, driving around national parks and hiking, hiking there. So I had my parents to really think for it in that. But I first started mountaineering actually after college. So I um, started with Kilimanjaro in my early 20s and then mm. just really fell in love with it and, and just haven't stopped since. I think it's been like 15 different peaks or something, a couple that I climbed multiple times. But, um, and then, you know, along the journey, I also started like skiing, mountaineering, and then like added some rock and ice climbing to the mix as well. Um, hoping to climb Denali next year. Um, but, but yeah, like, I think, you know, climbing has taught me so many life lessons, um, that I then, you know, I've extended some of it to, to profession, to, you know, my professional life as well. Um, mountain climbing is, is fundamentally about, you know, training six to nine months for some objective that then happens during a couple of days or maybe weeks. Um, mm -hmm. and it's an experience that's painful and, and beautiful. And you honestly probably will fail half the time because of, you know, forces out of your control, like weather. And so mm -hmm. that process of it, um, has just taught me so much about, you know, the humility and there's grit, um, kind of going with the flow, uh, enjoying kind of the journey because it ends in failure a lot of the time. And, uh, and then just keeping like a good perspective on, on, on life and not taking it like too seriously, even though at some point, sometimes it does feel a bit life threatening. <laughs> um, <laughs> and these are some of the, the learnings that, you know, and that, that, that I kind of bring to my work every day as well. Yeah. And there's something that I think you say about, uh, failure due to external factors. I think, um, especially like a lot of like high intensity uh adventure sports which i would put mountaineering in is that you know there's so much that you can control but there's also so many factors that are outside of your control and you know even i think in a work setting there's there's so much that you can control but you can't sometimes control regulatory shifts or organizational changes and i i think uh, understanding where where your like where you can prepare and like where your limits go and understanding when to let go is something yeah. that uh, is really interesting. When to let go. That is very important, you know, and I, and that applies to so many things like in mountaineering, when to let go of a summit, because you know, if you've spent even 30 more minutes on the mountain, you might die from just, you know, a white out storm, um, you know, mm. turn back to live another day. And, and that like in kind of like day to day work, I mean, I feel that about deals sometimes 
kind of letting go yeah. and lost, lost an opportunity or, or it's an opportunity that I really fell in love with, but you know, there's just wasn't the, it's not the right fit at the time or entrepreneurs letting go of a certain type, you know, product direction or, or market because, you know, there's just others that, you know, maybe they didn't execute well, but then maybe like the, the market shifted away from them. Like you just have to be able to, um, let, let go. And, and I think over the longer term, like it's just such an important quality, um, that, you know, I strive for myself and I'm looking for like in companies and just in my life. Yeah. I think like one of the last things I want to ask you is, you know, you got that interest in mountain climbing when you were in Oregon. Um, and now you're focused on Asia and focused on China and in, in particular as well. Do you think that that's, um, like help reconcile some things for you in terms of identity. I'm curious, you know, hmm. identity is always such a hard thing to put in a box, but is there yeah. something that's like, it's, yeah. Questions. I know, um, you know, you interview a lot of people who are cross-cultural and, and mm -hmm. I think, you know, cause I'm, um, I was born in Beijing, but I really grew up in the U S. Um, right. there's sad times when I feel like, you know, I can't reconcile the two identities entirely. I'm not 100% mm -hmm. American. I'm not 100% and certainly I'm not even close to, you know, like 100% uh, Chinese, but it's a blend of the two. And I feel like um, it has absolutely helped me try to reconcile my identities to spend as much time as I have in Asia and in China. Um, and I'm very well aware of what I don't know. And I don't know a lot in these markets, but, um, but I think you know, I've loved learning about it. I think it's brought me col like closer culturally, mm -hmm. like to, to some of my roots. And, um, and, uh, and I think, you know, it's just been like definitely a joy to combine the two. That's awesome. I, I also think a really great note to end on. I mean, this has just been such an enlightening almost hour with you, especially just, you know, talking about your, the space that you really have a grasp on and and understanding a lot of the different shifts and advice within that but also um kind of bring the lens a bit further out and and talking about your greater perspectives on on how you view personal life with professional life i i found it weaved together really really nicely so i thank you for that thank you for your awesome questions <laughs> Want more Ta for Ta? Hit subscribe to get updates on our episodes. You can also reach us on Twitter at Ta for Ta. And we love messages over email at ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Ta for Ta, Women's Success China is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks again to Kaiser Kuo for co-producing and Jason McRonald for editing. And until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.